Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We had asked that you would um, be present here. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and to speak. And thank you, Jesus, for the gift of giving us your spirit and presence in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever toured the parade of homes, as they call it? Anybody? Well, just around the corner this fall, there will be these parade of what I call houses filled with furniture and promise and usually a real estate agent as well, correct? And I've often thought, as I viewed those yellow signs with like number 356 with an arrow pointing to the home or house, what a creative, what a creative name for a bunch of empty houses. You know, have we seen over the past years this building of many houses What's been interesting is the building of homes is really another matter. In fact, as we've mastered the art of building houses and nearly gone broke as a nation trying to do that, at the same time, if you look at statistics, we've actually dismantled homes. We've actually not turned houses into homes. And so this series for the next few weeks will be called Turning Houses into Homes. And today I want to talk about parenting, graceful parenting. Next week, uh, Dr. John Vauder will be here for our big celebration, and he's going to talk about marriage over the long haul. And then we'll be doing some more in this series. But I wanted to share with you what I mean by the need to turn houses into homes and the statistics that um, are out there right now. For instance, uh, CNN headline, April 8, 2009, read, Out of wedlock births hit record high. Nearly 40% of babies born in the United States in 2007 were delivered by unwed mothers, according to data released last month by the National Center for Health Statistics. Out-of-wedlock births marked a more than 25% jump from five years before. Single parents since 1970, the single parent family has increased nearly 20%, according to population census statistics. Close to 40% children entering grade school live in a single-parent family. The area of suicide with regard to home. After a one-year spike in the number of suicides, doctors were hoping to see more normal numbers in the latest study, but they didn't. A sudden dramatic increase in pediatric suicides may reflect an emerging trend rather than a single-year anomaly. That's the conclusion of new suicide research conducted at the Research Institute at the Nationwide Children's Hospital. Following a decade of steady decline, the suicide rate among U.S. youth younger than 20 years of age increased by 18%. I could go on with more statistics of homes that were filled with dreams, desires, and aspirations that have fallen and crumbled. The numbers aren't good. In fact, you need to understand, as I was looking at this, these numbers are not mere statistics. These are real lives. These are real people who live with us, who attend here, who you work with, who feel real pain, who have had broken dreams, cherished hopes that no longer live. And so as I was thinking about this and thinking about this need to talk about turning houses into homes and we see this failing housing market, I got to this thought, how do we do this? How do we turn houses truly into homes? What kind of parenting 
really creates homes. If you're a single parent and you've experienced the pain and you've experienced the hopes that have been dashed and you're working through that process, how do you parent as God would want you now in the home that God has given you? How do you make that house into a home? How is a grandparent? How is a grandparent? Do you assist your adult child in building not just a house but a home? Have you ever created space for your kids, not just to come back to you, to talk to you about your parenting style, but to actually talk to you about things that may have caused some pain or hurt in their life? Are you willing to pay for their therapy? That's just a joke. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway. As a leader, how do you create a place where God can build his home in a person's heart? This is not just about parenting. This is about leading. This is about where you may be in any place where you're overseeing other people and hoping them to grow and mature into greater um, responsibility. Have you created an environment, an environment that is both filled with grace and truth? And how do you do that? Well, Jesus offers some great advice. If you turn to Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9, it's, a, it's an interesting passage of Scripture. Because I think Jesus is applying this to this whole process of those who will parent, those who will lead, those who will disciple people into greater responsibility and maturity so that they may become adults. So to parents and grandparents and leaders, Jesus basically in this passage of Scripture is teaching in response to a question that he received. The question that he was asked was by some of his disciples. And they they came to him and they said, Jesus, tell us about greatness. Who among us is the greatest? And in Jesus' answer, he basically says, in a sense, live in a way that allows followers to enter and experience God's kingdom. Live in such a way that people are in relationship to God and experience his rule and his life and his goodness and his blessing so that that can begin to flow through them. And as that flows through them, they might grow up into full maturity. If you look at what Jesus is saying in Matthew 18, 1 through 9, you've got to understand the context. For the past two years, Jesus has been training disciples and sharing with them as he see miracles, as he would tell stories and parables, as he would take those disciples aside and talk about what it meant to be in relationship with God the Father. He would model it for them. And, and they had been now for two years seeing all this. And they come to Jesus at this certain point, two years in the ministry, one year away from their being responsible to actually breathe life into to young and new converts and to disciple and to train and to lead into, in a sense, as parents, these children into the faith. One year away, and they come to Jesus. And, you know, they ask him a question. And if you think about it, questions often reveal your understanding. That's why when you're in a classroom setting or you're in a, you know, in a business team setting and, and you've got a question, it's sometimes fearful to raise your hand, right? Because you don't want to look what? Smart, right? No. You don't want to look stupid. You don't want to reveal what's going on inside where you're really at. And so these disciples, and I'm so glad that that there's a guy like Peter and there's some of these guys who, who they didn't care in one sense how they looked. They went and they asked the question and they revealed where they were at. And Jesus goes to answer their question. And what amazes me as I think about it is here are these guys who have lived in the presence of grace and truth manifest in all its fullness and they still didn't get it. Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't it give you hope as a leader and a parent to recognize the fact that, that God didn't go after two years? Ugh, 
I like a new team. You guys, he doesn't. He's so amazing. God is so amazing. He works with us if we're willing to open our hearts and work with him. And so here they are. They're standing here. And he says, and you see here in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9, at that time, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They have questions about greatness. We'll talk about that in a moment. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Now, this part gets rough. For all those people who say, you know, you know, it's all about grace. All about, here's here's grace also. Because God in grace will speak truth. And here's Jesus. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of such things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes, catch this, and be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus doesn't mince words. He just gives it straight. No one could ever say that Jesus was about political spin. You could never fault Jesus for religious correctness. He's very clear here. He says there is a life that leads to fire and hell. There is a life that moves in this direction. And you don't want to go there at all costs. So let's take a look at this. Look what he says in verse 1. They're concerned about who's the greatest. Who did God love the most? Have you ever thought that? Who of the twelve earned God's deepest love? Literally, who in the eyes of God is the greatest and most deserving of his love? Have you ever thought about that in your own self? Have you ever thought about, you know, where am I at with regard to the standards of what it means in the sense of, of, of greatness before God? Think about it for a second. In your family, have you ever kind of ever just wondered, you know, who's the greatest? In God's eyes? Ever kind of wondered that sometimes in, if you're in a, in a ministry situation, who, who's really the greatest in God's eyes in, in this ministry group? Or maybe in, in your work situation, as you, you know, you're about your work and you look at different people and the way they respond in their lives, and you go, you ever wonder who's the greatest in God's eyes? Who's most deserving of his love in that group? Now, it's interesting that Jesus makes this incredible answer to their statement. He doesn't say a thing. I, I don't know what his face looked like at the moment. I don't know if it was disappointment or sadness or kind of like, oh, man, they still don't get it. But Jesus' response is interesting. You've you got to picture the scene. They're waiting for him to answer. And Jesus looks at a little, probably three or four-year-old, standing next to a parent. And he says, oh. Come here a sec. little kid comes over, and he has him, and it says in Scripture, stand among them. He's standing among the twelve disciples. These are big guys. These are fishermen. 
they were, they're working nets, so they're, they're pretty pumped. You know, they got the, uh, they've got all the, the tools. They're, they're big. And they're standing there, and there's this little three or four year old standing among them. And Jesus has them, him stand there, and I think he looks them in the eyes, and he says, I tell you the truth. And I've said this before. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's not because he lies. It's because he's saying, here is something so important, so essential, so true, that you can actually take it to the, well, maybe not the bank, but you can take it to God and believe it. And he says this, unless you change. And that's not a subtle correction. This is really a strong rebuke. He's saying, unless you guys change. And become like this little child. You will never enter the kingdom of God. Now that's a huge statement, isn't it? You will not experience the life giving presence in, in his love and his blessing and in, in know and feel and, and walk in his goodness if you don't become like a little child. Now think about it. I think Jesus uses a little kid for a reason. I think he's trying to because he's such a gifted communicator. He wants to illustrate without hardly saying anything in a picture form what it's like to know and experience and receive God's presence and goodness and love. And he says very simply and very clearly, guys, your categories of greatness are off. They're not right. It's not about how much you do and what you've done. It's not about the last missionary trip I sent you on that you saw these kind of things happen and you performed even miracles in my name. It's not about any of that stuff. It's all about... Being like a child, unassuming, you know, unaware in many ways of their gifts and all that they have. Just receiving life and love from God. Now, let me put it this way. I think one of the reasons he uses a little child is for us to see this as well. How many of you hug a little four-year-old because they are able to do something for you? You see a little three-year-old or a little two-year-old and they're standing there and how many of you give them a hug because they deserve it or because they've earned it or somehow they've qualified for it or somehow they need that in a sense they've done something so you can approve them. So often when you see a little two or three-year-old, what you are going to do is just open your arms and welcome them for who they are and what they are and you receive them just as they are with all that's in them, right? Let's look at it this way. When we have children up here, which is always fun to do, you have little children who come up and they sing, you know, you have the three and four year olds and maybe even two. They get, they get up here, all those preschool kids, and, and they're up here and they're standing. How many parents and grandparents have an eye to their performance, are going, oh, I just really hope they do a good job? How many, how many, think about it, how many moms are up here going, oh, I'm going to be so bent out of shape that they don't sing that tune just right? They better not move. I mean, even if they run down the stairs crying, what do you do? You don't shame them and you don't say, well, you don't deserve a hug. You should have stood up. You grab them and you put them in your arms and you love them. There's no category of greatness, is there? And Jesus is looking at disciples and he said, guys, you still don't get it. 
This whole life, this life that you want to experience, that you want to enjoy, that's all about this power of God and presence of God and joy of God and grace of God and all this stuff flowing through you is all about just welcoming His arms like a little child would run into them. You're not thinking correctly. The truth that God wants us to grasp is that He loves us and no one is greater in His eyes, more deserving of His love because of one's performance. You can't earn, deserve, or gain more of God's love. God does not love Billy Graham greater than He loves you. He does not love Martha Teresa greater than He loves you. Do you know this? He does not love Jesus more than He loves you. Do you believe that? That was almost hard for me to write and say. But if you stand in Him, you stand fully in His love. 100%. It's not about you. Praise God. Right? That's the grace of God. And so he says, I want you to see this. But what's interesting, somehow, as parents, because we may not grasp that that fully, and we may have it in our head, but not fully in our heart, and it's not worked out in our life because of the wounds of our past and because of generational sins and all other kinds of things that that get in the way through our own choices as well. Somewhere along the line, as parents, as leaders... Things kind of change and our love and our acceptance becomes based on performance and upon our need. And it's more about us than it's about them. And Jesus is basically saying in in kind of the very first point that I want to give you, if you want to be a graceful parent, you have to be a grace-filled person. It has to come into your heart. It can't be just about your head. The more you are filled with His grace, the more you are full of that grace and with that truth. Let me tell you this. Grace does not come apart from truth. That is a lie. We're going to see that in a moment in verse 6 because Jesus gets really truthful. If you think grace means you can live and do whatever you want and it doesn't bring about change, then you don't know the grace of God. It's plain and simple. But the grace of God is what sets you free. As you begin to understand and experience His love, as it begins to penetrate you, you begin to forgive others as they have hurt you and wounded you and you learn how to forgive and because you know you have been forgiven by Him. As you begin to become patient with others and, and you understand what it means because you understand the patience of God. When you become dependable towards others because you understand that God has been dependable to, towards you. When those things begin to change your life, which are all the grace of God, which is all you do is you come with your sin. I don't care what you've ever done done in your past. I don't care what sin you think is nagging you with guilt. God loves you just the way you are. And God calls us as people to become people and parents and leaders who are full of grace, full of it in ourselves so that we can give it to someone else. That's what will change your family and home. That's what will make a house a home. And what is interesting about this is when I, when I think about it, there's models and examples of this all throughout our life. Go and, and sit on an airplane and, and before you um, get ready to take off and as you're, you're maybe getting prepared, a flight attendant stands up and says, says this to you. They ask you um, to take and to listen to instructions. Here's one of them. If there is a sudden loss of air pressure, oxygen mass will automatically be released. Right? You've heard that? What's the next thing the flight attendant says? If you're traveling with small children, secure your mask first, then assist your child. 
that's what I what I what I think about when Jesus is looking at these disciples before one year before they are going to go out and actually parent others and disciple others and lead others. He looks them in the eyes and he says, you guys, if you don't put the mask on first, you won't be in a position to give it to someone else. If you're not drawing oxygen, the grace of God into your life, so it's actually changing who you are and you're becoming more like him. There's no way it will permeate the environment of your home. And so he basically makes a very simple point. Graceful parenting begins with being a grace-filled person. You can't give what you don't have. It's just a simple principle. And I just really want you to think about it for a second. Do you know that in your heart? Are there still in your mind categories of greatness? Or do you see yourself as God sees you? As that parent watching this child sees you as a masterpiece that you just want to put your arms around in love and that's your God with the sin even in your life. But now he goes on, he makes a very interesting change right here because he, he's talking to these disciples. And look what he says here if you look at the next verse, verse 6. And, and this is what I call, not only does a graceful parenting begin with being a grace-filled person, graceful parenting be, requires, I think, thoughtful parenting. That's what Jesus is calling them to. He's asking them to really think through now this whole thing of grace. Verse 6. He gives a very strong warning. He says, Woe. Which is, a, which is a call for potential doom. It'd be as if you're walking in front of a car and someone says, Stop! So that you won't feel the consequences that you're just about to experience. He says, Watch out, think, in essence, give serious thought. If anyone, verse 6, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, now you have to look at this word. It's, it's very interesting. The word to sin means here to cause to stumble. It's the idea of entrapping someone. Now, when you think about entrapping someone and millstones being tied around someone's neck, you get this image in, in your mind, possibly, like I did. What comes to your mind when you think of someone who deserves to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea? Someone who entraps someone. Well, I think of the sinister person who's sitting on the side of the road waiting for the likes of a Jacob Wetterling, right? <laughs> that guy, if anyone, deserves to have a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. Or maybe you think about the, you know, the sleazy guy who works with another woman to get a, a, a young teenage girl behind a camera who her desire is to somehow be a model and to make it big into Hollywood and all the rest. And, and this sleazy guy, through one little trap after another, gets her into a place where eventually she's actually stumbling and entrapped in a life of pornographic pain. That guy and that girl, they deserve that millstone to be thrown in the sea. Or maybe you think of that person... Kind of who hangs around the, the, you know, the shopping mall or the playground as the little kids are, you know, maybe junior high kids are playing and, and they're standing there waiting to sell them drugs so that they, as they sell them drugs, they cause them to stumble and be entrapped into a whole life of addiction. That is worthy of a millstone tied around the neck and dropped into the sea. 
But if you look closely, here's this Jesus who says, if you want to welcome um, my life and the life of God into your life, you have to receive it like a child. You have to receive um, his love for his love, not your love. And then he looks at him and says these incredibly difficult, hard words. He is not looking at some pimp or some other kind of person. He's not looking over their shoulders at some drug pusher. He's looking in their eyes. He's talking to the disciples here. This is a teaching that he wants them to grasp right now and to bank on it and to live in it and to change and walk in it. For if they don't, they will sin, causing others to stumble and be entrapped in a life that puts them outside the life of God into a life of performing and earning and deserving and doing all these things that lead nowhere but to hell. That's what he's saying. It's, it's so hard. And I preached this in the first service and it's just it's one of these truths that just go, oh, but really, Jesus? Jesus talking to disciples who will parent other young and naive ones into maturity. He is saying this. Think through the parenting process carefully. Do not entrap these little ones who believe in me and I've entrusted you, who find their acceptance and love in me. Do not cause them to turn from me and become entrapped, thinking that somehow their love and their acceptance comes from their performance. Their ability to play baseball, kick a soccer ball, or dance across a stage, or play an instrument, or get A's. Don't ever. Don't ever get them trapped into thinking that's the basis for which they come into my presence. There are some significant differences between a graceful and thoughtful parent and one who trips their children up and causes them to be trapped into a life of performance. Simply an obstacle is what Jesus calls here. Because it trips them up or it traps them. Is any, catch this, any false perception of reality that we live and give our children with regard to God. And you're going to go with... <laughs> That's going to happen. I'm not, I'm not perfect. And, he, and I just go, praise God for His grace. Stay in His grace. Recognize your sin and your failure. Because here's what He calls you to do. Listen to this. It's really interesting. He says in these verses, verse 7, He says, woe to the world. Because it's in the world. This is going to happen. It's, it's, it's going to happen. But if your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better to enter and he says life here. He's not talking about life someday down the road. He's talking about life now, disciples. It is better to enter life now. Do whatever you need to do. There's this attitude that says, as a parent, as a leader, that says, God, thank you so much for your grace. I'm humbled that you would love me, that it's about you. And now give me the perspective and the willingness and the understanding so that if there is anything within me that displeases you or causes others to be tripped up or to stumble or to be trapped, if there's any of these things within me that, that really are not your love and not your grace and not your truth, would you rip it from me? Would you cut it off? Would you do what you need to do so that I can walk in this life today? Now, and so can other people as well. <laughs> That's his words. Simply any obstacle, a false reception of reality that we live and we give our children, which in perspective to their relationship to God, and they buy into it as truth and they end up stumbling upon the lie that we fed them. There's some obstacles. Let me just share with you a few. There are some family systems where... The watchword is be blind to your kids. 
When your child sees things that are out of touch with reality that don't seem to line up with what is true, you either don't listen or you tell them not to watch it and you, in a fancy way, contradict their perception with creative other things so that they can't speak about it. I mean, let me just give you sometimes, this isn't true in all cases, but in some cases, in some family systems, the child that seems to be way off, the black sheep that seems to be running, sometimes the black sheep is one that says, what's going on here isn't real, isn't true, and they, they just stand up for it. Instead of doing it in a way that's healthy, they do it in a healthy way. I just say sometimes you've got to pay attention to that. Be quiet is another way. There's this, this thing that you don't tell family secrets. We live with these secrets and we, and, and, we, and we maintain these secrets and we live in these secrets, but we don't want others, you know, we, you know let's not get real about them. For instance, a, a very typical one would be in, a, in an alcoholic home with an alcoholic dad. And you have this system where there's a person who is an alcoholic and, and everyone seems to know it and they all walk around tiptoeing around it and they, they act like it's not real to anyone else on the outside, but everyone on the outside sees it, right? And you have to deny this reality. So not only is it you be blind, but you have to be quiet about it. These are the kind of systems that create houses that fall apart. Be numb. Not just be blind, but be quiet and be numb. Don't feel. When, when sad, don't admit it. When, when you're feeling hurt and you've been wounded, you, you can't talk about it. I had someone after the first service come up to me and say, a young person who, um, probably in their 20s, came up to me and said, you know, I just got to ask you about this be numb thing. I'm struggling with it because when, my, when I was younger, my mom would, you know, I had these wounds and I would feel wounded. And then, then my mom would say to me, now don't be sorry for yourself. And I was talking about, you know, God rooting out self-pity in me. And he says, is there a healthy kind of self-pity? And I just said, you know what? What's going on there is what happens so often in family systems. A person's been wounded by an adult. An adult turns to them. And because they don't want to hear the, feel the consequences of the pain they've caused, they say, don't feel pain. Because they can't handle it. Does that make sense? I'm talking to this person. He goes, man, that makes a lot of sense. I said, is this someone, your mom actually hit with her hammer on your thumb and then said, now don't scream. Some of you have grown up in systems like that. There are churches that are like that. And they don't create a home where God's present. And, and, and so there's this idea of be numb. And then be good for for not goodness sake, but be good for my sake, because it's all about me. Don't let your needs get in the way of, of my need as a mom or a dad. You need to look good. In fact, you almost need to be perfect for my sake. A child is dependent and trusting, and they believe what they see and experience. They trust what comes from us as being right and good. And if it isn't true, and we teach them systems of family houses that break down because of these kind of things, they will stumble when they walk into the reality of life. They have been trapped by a lie. And Jesus is saying, get real, guys. The church that I'm creating, the homes that I want created, the workplaces I want created, the social clubs that I want created, the things that I want in this world that I want living through me are the ones that represent reality where there is both grace and there is truth. And so he's very truthful right here. He looks in the eyes of, of his disciples, you and me, and he says, listen, folks, if you know in your life 
There are things. This is not a kind of like God loves me and everything's okay and I'm fine. If you know in your life there are things that, that are displeasing to God, patterns of gossip, self-pity that you may have, um, this a tendency to be codependent on a spouse and be afraid of their anger or afraid of upsetting your child. I don't know what it is, but it is called sin. And it will actually trip up if you live this pattern and you display this kind of model of a life, whether it's a home or church or workplace, whatever. If it isn't in touch with reality where there's real grace and there's real truth, it will burn up, says Jesus. It'll burn up. And his attitude is this. And this is my heart personally. And I'm, I'm, I'm admitting the fact that I want to grow in this. And, uh, you know, here's the problem with pastors. They can always teach more than they can live. But here's the problem with all of us. We all do that. But here's what God wants. Through Jesus, he says very clearly. Would you have this kind of attitude that isn't this kind of, oh, God loves me, it doesn't matter. Would you have this attitude, God loves me, isn't this incredible? And God, because you love me so much, would you cut out, would you root out whatever needs to be rooted out, even if it meant I have to walk on one leg or I have one eye? Because I want you. I want you. And I want you to show up in my life as a parent because that's the kind of home I want to create. I want you to show up in my life as an elder because that's the kind of church I want to create. I want you to show up in my life as a, as a leader of one of the adult classes or a small group because that's the kind of experience that I want to give the people that are under my charge and care. Well, I think, I think it is so cool because Jesus is not afraid at all he will pull no punches. Um, he has no holds bar. And he just says very clearly in those last verses, are we willing to look at the lies we have believed and take responsibility for them for the sake of God? And if not for the sake of God, for the sake of those children, those students, those mentors, those people under you, so that they might grow up and experience God's love through you. I just want to ask very, very simply. Because Jesus was talking to disciples who had been in his presence for a long time. And you could be a person who's been in the church a long time. You could be a person who grew up in a home that, that, that was a, a follower after Christ. But have you ever, for your child's sake, or maybe your adult child's sake, or for your grandchild's sake, said to Jesus, Jesus, I want to live in your grace and truth. I am done performing. I am, don't want to wear a mask here or anywhere. I invite you into my heart to show up authentically. And I'm willing to admit my sin and my need. I'm willing to come to you like a child just the way I am and say, would you begin to lead me into this life that you're talking about? You know what? I, I don't care if you've been in the church or you have grown up in a Christian home or you've been under teaching in a Bible school. I don't care about any of that. Jesus didn't seem to care. He looked in the eyes of his disciples. He said, if you don't get it, admit it and walk into this. Receive it. It's a gift. You don't earn it or deserve it. You get it if you open your heart and become humble. And then there's a second question for some. I just want you to ask this to yourself. Have you ever said to Jesus, 
I want you to really think about this. Have you ever said to Jesus, would you expose and cut out every sin in my life? No matter what, you've got to lop off to do it. Not, not, don't do that lightly. Have you ever said, I'm tired of living in patterns that I have accepted and chosen and received maybe from my past or ones that I've chosen out of my woundedness and I am coming before you right now, Jesus, to say, it's done today for my kid's sake, for my adult child's sake, for my grandchild's sake. Because you know what? Choices you make, parents, grandparents, they have an impact spiritually on your child whether you know it or not. So I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray. I want you to contemplate and think about this as we sing this song, as Mark leads us. And just, would you just sing it from your heart if you're in that place, if you need to just pray and consider, that's fine. And let's just um, worship God. Mm -hmm.